Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, thanks for downloading this Kermit on Film podcast, which this week comes live from the Rotterdam Film Festival. I'm here with Jack Howard. Hello there. We are currently on a water taxi going back to the venue for tonight's show, which is him and me on stage for an hour and a half talking about movies movies and whatever else <laughs> takes up any idea what what will be maybe a bit of award stuff maybe a bit of stuff about what critics are about oh some music in movies yes we're going to be talking about music in movies our top three favorite uses of music in movies that's all coming to you live right now thank you thank you very much so, just yeah. remind me how did we meet tinder <laughs> tinder you know i, I Got out of a long distance, uh, well, not a long distance thing, a sort of long committed thing. I wasn't ready, but we were there and we met each other and we just hit it off, didn't we? We met outside a Star Wars movie. That's not true. It's not true. You always admit the actual real version. It isn't Tinder, obviously. But the real version is that you did slide into my DMs. What? You always forget this bit. When One time, when I used to work at Radio 1 for a bit, and Mark just messaged me on, on Twitter and said, Hi, Jack, this is Mark Kermode. I know you're working at Radio 1. My son's a big fan. Would I be able to bring him into Radio 1 and show him around That's and things right. like that? And then I was like, hello, Mark Kermode. I'm a massive fan of you. Yeah, you can come in. Would you like to be on my show? And then actually what happened is that your son, Gabriel, wasn't able to come to Radio 1 on that day, but you I came anyway, anyway right. and did I the show. I organised a day out for my child and then I forgot the child. <laughs> <laughs> so then you came and did the show and then we, we met outside uh, the premiere or screening of Star Wars The Force Awakens before we all knew that it was going wrong. It was happier times. So, but, okay, but, so in Star Wars news, because just before we, literally just before we came on, Jack is much more of a sort of Star Wars nerd fan uh, than I am. And, uh, and actually, we, that, was, that was partly how we sort of, we fell into conversation about, because I remember really only getting Star Wars for the first time when Force Awakens happened. And that's and the then, same for me. And you came in with a whole bunch. Of, so what's, what's the Star Wars so th- thing that's just happened? There's a big thing that's happened this week, which is that it's been leaked on the internet has anybody seen this? That uh, there was a, a complete alternate version of Star Wars Episode Nine called uh, The Jewel of the Fates, which was originally Colin Trevorrow's original script and story, what he was going to be doing. A terrible title. Oh, it's not. It's quite a good. Jewel of, of the Fates. Fates, which is of the Fates. Of the Fates. Yeah. <laughs> what did you think I was saying? That's what I thought you were oh, saying. Right. I thought it's you were saying terrible... feet. <laughs> it's like calling it Pond of Wood or, you know. Oh. 
But look at that screenshot. He was going to catch Luke Skywalker. The ghost was going to catch an actual lightsaber. That was going to be so cool. Okay, but the point is that this version of the script that's been really, is essentially picks up much more from the, f- the film yes. that you and I both like. Of The Last Jedi, yeah, yes. Yeah, The Last Jedi, which had caused the fans to go, you know, to lose their minds and go completely mad. Very and split down the middle on that one. Um, well, split down the middle, people who knew what they were talking good about to see, and liked though. it, and idiot fanboys who decided to write to Disney and go, you've got to take it out of the canon because it didn't do the thing I want to do and I own Star Wars. <laughs> on on that, s- that screenshot, though, that we've got there, it's good to see that in no matter what version of Star Wars, you know, Finn is still yelling, Ray. <laughs> <laughs> It's good to see that that makes it through all versions. Have you read this script? It's not available as far as I can tell. A lot of people have read it and have done like a detailed uh, sort of description of what it is. Okay. And Colin Trevorrow on Twitter has been like, yeah, it's real. And okay. these are real. And, the, and these were originally supposed to, apparently these screenshots were supposed to be in an art of uh, the Rise of Skywalker. Okay. And they're now being pulled back and they're going to reprint the book because these are all a bunch of stuff that was never supposed to be seen. Because, because what we all thought of, uh, what's the last one even? Rise, Rise of Skywalker. Rise Skywalker. We all thought, well, it was fine, but it didn't do, it didn't pick up on any of the interesting stuff from Last Jedi and it sort of spoiled a lot of things that should have been followed up and it was okay, yeah. but it was nothing more than okay. The way that it makes me feel now, because like you, I didn't get Star Wars fully until I saw Force Awakens and I was like, ah, I understand now. Like this, this is, I'm enjoying this. And now the Rise of Skywalker to me makes me feel embarrassed for ever having cared because I feel like I've just been slapped in the face. But Last Jedi was absolutely brilliant. And I remember we came out afterwards and we sat in the pub and talked about how fabulous it was. And then we're all astonished when the fans were on, you know, the internet the next day saying how much they hated it, Mm -hmm. Uh, which I think is, I think is a real shame because I think it's interesting. I would like to read this script, although I, you know, unfortunately it now creates a whole other fan universe in which people have imagined versions of films that don't. That's exactly it. I mean, that is me now. I'm going to spend too much time thinking about this and knowing that there's an alternate version that could have existed, although it probably wouldn't have done because the last version of this script that's dated is a few days before Carrie Fisher ended up dying. And as you can see, in one of those screenshots, there was going to be uh, a very significant homage to the first Star Wars where she was going to give a message to BB-8. And that obviously wouldn't have been able to happen with her unfortunate passing. But obviously none of it happened, so it doesn't matter. So I need to stop thinking about it. So so you're not going to stop thinking about it. You are going to obsess about it over and over and over again. Okay, fine. So the other thing, very quickly, at the top of the show is, as you all probably know, uh, we lost Terry Jones. And um, this is a a real shame. There was tributes... in the UK, certainly, I imagine there will have been here because he was an extraordinary uh, writer and performer and director. And we wanted to just quickly show a clip. Um, I mean, I know that everyone has been showing the he's not the Messiah, he's a very naughty boy clip. So we just wanted to show something slightly different also from Life of Brian. So here is, just as a little tribute to the brilliant Terry Jones, one of the less uh, celebrated moments from Life of Brian. Who was it? Nautius Maximus, his name was. Hmm. Promise me the known world, he did. I was to be taken to Rome, passed by the form, slaves, asses, as much gold as I could eat. Then he, having his way with me, had boom, like a rat out of an aqueduct. The bastard! Yes, and next time you go on about the bloody Romans, don't forget you're one of them. I'm not a Roman monk, and I never will be. I'm a kike, a yid, a hebe, a hook nose, I'm kosher, mum, I'm a Red Sea pedestrian, and proud of it! Sex, 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 that's all they think about her. 
Okay, so the other thing, just kind of at, at the top of the show, is uh, you may not know this, but I'm not great with film festivals. Only I've got better recently. Um, you've, been, you're, you've been to like Cannes and all that stuff. And yeah, I've been to Cannes a couple of times. I also do a, a festival in Canada called Buffer Festival, which is about specifically online filmmakers. Uh, yeah, I've done a couple of them. I don't particularly mind them. I don't, you, I don't get your, well, so your I, beef. So I've I, recently I've kind of I've mellowed and I've become I've having, having a lovely time here in Sydney. Thank you very much. Everyone's been really friendly. Uh, Linda, my partner, and I run a film festival in, in Shetland. Um, and recently, I was in the Strasbourg Film Festival, which was really lovely, and it was that was great, except for the fact that we we're leaving Europe, which made it very sad. I used to have a complete meltdown every time I went to a film festival. Wasn't it specifically Cannes? Cannes specifically, because have any of you been to Cannes? Yeah. Uh, how was your experience? Good or bad? Good. Bad. Yeah. No, no, I heard somebody shouted good, but, but but hang on. So who had good? Who had a good experience? Have we got? A, have we got a microphone. Have we got an audience microphone? We have. Are you okay? One second. I just I, very in a kind of compact form. I want you to tell me what in the in the green top. What was what was good about uh, your experience of Cannes? You're speaking for Cannes. You're now. speaking for Cannes on yeah. behalf of Cannes officially. I have no idea what to say. I, I just liked it. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed my experience. Did you see good what films? Did you, did, what did what I, didn't you like about it? Ev- everything. <laughs> okay. I, I so, liked everything. About so it. essentially, my, my, my problem is, that firstly, I think there are people who are good at festivals. And I can see from your demeanor that you are good at festivals, okay? You know, you embrace it and you're having a good time and you're sitting there in the front row and it's, this is lovely. Me, I arrive at, at Cannes, I get a headache the minute I get off the plane. I get massively dehydrated and bothered and anxious because I don't like being away from home and I then see five movies back to back and I lose all sense of judgment and I turn into a raving lunatic and the last time I, I was in, I, what happens is I get angrier and angrier about this because firstly I don't like the thing about having to see things you know back to back to back to back to back and then file reviews very quickly because I like I like to have time to think about a, a, a film after I've seen it ideally 10 years but usually it's like an, an hour and I, there's all this thing about every critic is, you know, uh, did you see that? Did you, oh, you missed that? Oh, you know, and that, that really bothers me. And I, I was at Cannes when Lars von Trier's film The Idiots got shown. And I, 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 honestly, I was like a pressure cooker. I was going crazy the whole festival. And I was in the middle of The Idiots, and I hated The Idiots. I mean, I actually quite liked some of Lars von Trier's films, but I hated The Idiots. I hated Breaking the Waves, but I really, really hated The Idiots. And I was sitting there watching The Idiots, getting more and more uncomfortable with how much I hated it. And then there's a bit about two-thirds of the way through when, because it's an art film, suddenly there's this hardcore porn sequence in it. And all these critics in Cannes went, oh, bravo. (laughs) So brave, you know, well done. Well, I thought I've had enough and I stood up and I went, Ile Med! Ile le plus grand med dans le monde entire! And they threw me out. They literally threw Were me out. Were you there when that happened? Well, this was some time ago. <laughs> and, then, and then, years later, I interviewed Lars von Trier and I said, I have to tell you that I got thrown out of Cam for shouting at your film. And he said, oh, great. He said, he said, why? I said, I hated it. He said, but did you really hate it? And I said, yeah, I really. He said, but did you really hate it? And I said, I really hated it. He said, fine, then we'll get on fine. He, he was only bothered if I just thought it was okay or if I just didn't like it a little bit. But, so you said you didn't. You didn't like Cam? No. Uh, can we just run the microphone here? Oh. You didn't like Cam because? 
Well, it's, it's because of the fact that you have to stand in line uh, for ridiculous amounts of time. Yep. So it's actually um, because Khan, everybody thinks it's really sort of glitzy, but it's actually a pensionado village. Uh, and the biggest festival in the world is being held there. Yes. Um, but it's all really crappy cinemas. It's also from the 70s. It's, I mean, all the it's falling apart, really. Yeah. So yeah. you have to do your job as like watching films, uh, yet you don't get the chance to do that. Yeah, and it is like trying to do your job with everybody else in the same room, trying to do the job at the same time. And there is that weird thing that after you've seen five films back to back for five days, you haven't got any critical judgment left at all, which is why it is that you read so many reviews of films from festivals in which people say it's a masterpiece. And what they meant was... I'd lost the will to live by that point. And you end up standing up and shouting at the screen. Yeah, exactly, yeah. How I didn't know that about you. Did you? No, it's true. Do you know that story? Wow. Yeah, and literally, they literally had to physically throw me out. <laughs> and there was, a, there was a BBC documentary crew that was following some critics around, and there is a shot of me sitting on the pavement almost in tears wanting to go home. <laughs> And I, was, I rang my, my wife, Linda, who's here somewhere, and I said, I'm okay, I just want to go home. And then and I, and I, I, went, I went back, and then Radio 1 said, we're not going to send you to Cannes anymore because nobody likes to hear the sound of somebody complaining about being in the south of France. <laughs> so that was, that was the end of that. However, this is a lovely festival, and I've really managed to, to, to balance everything out. What are some of the highlights at the festival, Jack? What's, what have we been Ooh. impressed to see? How is your masterclass coming up? Yes, very, very excited about that. But the big one for me is that Bong Joon-ho is doing a masterclass and also Parasite is showing in black and white. Yeah. Which is a very interesting choice and I'm sad that I have to leave before that's happening. Can I read you this from what Bong Joon-ho said? Absolutely. He, he said, um, I'm sure everyone will have a different opinion about this version. This is the black and white version. Personally, I think all the characters look even more poignant and that the distinctions between the three different spaces where the families live with all the shades of grey are even more tragic but above all I can't wait to hear the reactions from the audience in Rotterdam it, obviously because it opened here didn't it like a month or so ago and they said this the black it's not out in the UK yet um, no, we, we're not getting it till February February 7th is when it's out in the UK which is a day I think before the BAFTAs oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is so strange that I assume it's going to win pretty decent awards across the board at the BAFTAs and the Oscars um, and I'm you know I've got my fingers crossed for it because I think although it's not my personal favourite film of the year it absolutely is up there as like it's, I think it is it's as close to perfect as you can get okay Let's, okay, let's, so you, since you mentioned the awards, right? Mm. So at the Oscars, Parasite is up for Best Foreign Language Film and Best Film. Well, it's actually a Best International Film oh, now. They've, they've changed, changed the, they've changed the title. Film. Yeah. Okay, so what do you think it's going to win? I am starting to get really optimistic that it has a fighting chance to win Best Picture. I've got a, I'm, I'm getting really optimistic about it because it's everybody's favourite film. Everybody's talking about Parasite. I think 1917 is more likely to win Best Picture, but I think that Parasite's got a fighting chance. And I do think that Bon Joon-ho might win Best Director. Yeah, I think you're right about Best Director. I wish you were right about Best Film, but I don't think it will, because I think it will be 1917. Has, has 1917 opened here? Yeah. Okay, fine. So most of you have seen 1917. Most of you have seen Parasite, right? Completely unscientific. How many of you think that 1917 is going to win Best Picture? Okay, but no, but that's only... That was like a that was like maybe a quarter. Yeah. Okay. So how many of you think that Parasite might win Best Picture? 
Okay, so thank you, you and me uh, but, but together also, in optimism. Yeah, exactly. But also doing the sound thing. So thank you very much, gentlemen. Who I was trying to I was radio. trying to encourage them to clap yeah, for radio. their, but they didn't do it. So how many people think Joker's going to win? So more of you wow. think that Joker is going to win the 1917. I don't know what world I'm living in. Then. You're all wrong. 1917 is going to win Best Picture. There, 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 there's almost no debate about this. 1917 is going to win Best Picture. Firstly, because I think it is actually good. Yeah, me too. Secondly, because the thing that wins Best Picture is always the thing that isn't divisive. Anything that's divisive doesn't win. So that's not. I mean, Moonlight won. Moon, I mean, it, Moonlight, not it wasn't divisive, but it was like it wasn't the expected win. No, it was so unexpected that they accidentally gave it to Lala. <laughs> <laughs> no, but okay, but generally, if you look back at the history of the Oscars, it's it's the non. So, for example, I know you know the answer. To this what won Best Picture the year that Citizen Kane didn't? How green was my valley? How green was my valley? And what do we all remember about How Green Was My Valley? It's fine. It's fine, right? It's not Citizen Kane. It's fine. What won Best Picture the year the Exorcist didn't? Yes, well done. The Sting, again. Do you remember what won Best Picture of the Year that 2001 A Space Odyssey came out? Uh, could it be Oliver? Oliver. 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 <laughs> 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 Which is fine. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> the 2001 A Space Odyssey basically invented sci-fi. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, hang on. Okay, two things. Firstly, 2001 didn't invent sci-fi. There was science fiction before. Oh, I know what you. I know what you. But there were sliding doors and Skype and yeah, things yeah, like yeah. that. Like yeah. you look at it now and you're just like, oh, this it, is, it invented the future. Yeah, invented science fiction. Been around for a long time. Okay, so most egregious film that didn't win Best Picture. What's for you is the uh, is the the real stat? Because for me, clearly, it's The Exorcist. Uh -huh. I think the idea that any better film came out in 1973 is just farcical. Yeah, it didn't. The best film of that year was the, and in fact, William Friedkin had won the the Oscar two years before for The French Connection, which I think arguably there were better pictures out that year. But The Exorcist is demonstrably the best picture of that year, and indeed I would say of any year. For me, it was, I mean, because it's such a, this is such a, <laughs> this is such a, this is this was such a strong year that I can't believe what did win in 2010. I think it should have absolutely, undoubtedly been The Social Network that won the Best Picture. What and it should have won, won, been Best Director. What won? Uh, the King's Speech. The King's Speech. He's really good. <laughs> yeah. You want to get him a microphone? That's right. What uh, are the 39 steps? Come on. <laughs> 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 the King's Speech. But that year, Inception was nominated. The Social Network, Black Swan, Toy Story 3. And oh, the King's Speech won. Yeah, yeah, no, that is shocking. Then again... And he went on and made Cats. So that's good, isn't it? Did, you, did Cats open here? Did you... Please tell me you didn't all go and see it. No, because no, there was a hand up at the back. You saw Cats? Yeah, he saw it. You, okay. <laughs> have, you managed, have you managed to expunge it from your memory or is it... Did you like it? No, it is that bad. It's, it's a, do we have a mic? Hang on, do we have a microphone? Where's the microphone? You're getting called out well, now, yes, mate. To, to, to the gentleman who thinks that cats isn't that bad. <laughs> and we need to have a conversation. Yeah, okay. Hi. Can, I ask, you, can Hi. I ask you to stand up? Yeah. There's Hi. a bit in it. Yeah. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Wait, hang on. I just want no. to say this. There's a bit in it. I didn't there. pay for the ticket. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Fair <First>. enough. <laughs> There's a bit in it where 
cockroaches have human faces. No, no, it's not a. That's not the point, you know. <laughs> it's like look past that. So I mean, anyway, hang on. First, firstly, introduce yourself to the room. Hi, I'm Ivan. Ivan. I, so I, you I, say I'm Ivan, and I like cats. No, no, it's not that I like it. I, I, I think it's just like I mean, do you think about like uh, the last hours before like someone saw it, they were like, "This is gonna go." Worldwide is going to be premiered. I mean, where, where were those meetings like? Don't you ask yourself that? <laughs> it's like, yeah, this no is one okay. tell them. It's like it's amazing that that happened. It's like an anomaly, like a, a glitch in the system. All so of it's amazing to me. The fact that yeah. they didn't shoot it using motion capture is amazing to me. They basically shot it as it was and then yeah. said to the visual effects people, "Eyeball it," which is insane. Yeah, exactly. I think I think it's going to be like a, you know um, psychedelic cult film in a couple of years. <laughs> There is there was a, there was a thing on IndieWire, which was there's a film club that reviewed uh, Cats after having taken drugs, and it was it was the, the best reviews of Cats by people who were off their tits on LSD, and they, that was that was literally the only way that you could see the film. In terms of that, the minutes before the film opened, the the weirdest thing is that the film opened and everyone went, <gasps> and then Tom Hooper went. Well, some of the digital fur isn't good enough. We've got to, re- got to you know, we've got to send out a new version yeah, of new fix digital it, fur. You go, yeah, that's it. Because honestly, that was the thing that was bothering <laughs> improved me. Improved it now. Some of the digital fur wasn't quite good enough. It wasn't the fact that you've made the film in the first place on a fundamentally flawed. Okay, so <laughs> this leads us on to. This was weirdly does enough, it? It does. This was planned, and actually, <laughs> amazingly, we, we're on time. I don't know how that happened because we went off on a loop, but. This leads us on to something which we were going to talk about, which is, what is the point of film criticism in a world in which cats can exist? And I'll, I'll, be, very, I'll be clear about this. Cats was not killed by bad reviews, okay? Because all the reviews of Cats were embargoed until, like, six hours before it opened. I mean, it premiered in New I wonder York. why. No, but, but Jack, but exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that all the reviews were embargoed because the film company knew that it was a stinker because they'd been looking at it, as you say, the minutes beforehand. They will have been looking at it for months and going, this is never going to fly. Maybe, in, maybe at some part in their brain they thought, I don't know, maybe, you know, maybe it'll work. I mean, people thought that Howard the Duck was going to be a hit until the moment that it opened. You know? I mean, there's, like, there's a lot of preview screenings now for superhero movies and all the rest of it so when Batman vs Superman was first shown to fans and even actually the rise of Skywalker when it was first shown there was buzz online about oh like it's it's exciting it's good I, oh, this be- this bit in it is fun and they have fan reactions but I don't know if anyone's that big of a fan of cats no that they're going to see that movie and be like it's the adaptation it always needed okay <laughs> but so when cats opened all the bad reviews came out at the, exactly the same time So firstly, it wasn't that people were jumping on top of it to try and outdo each other. Everyone had independently decided that it was beyond belief terrible. What was the best bad review that you saw? To be honest with you, I kind of stopped. There was a couple. I read um, Peter Bradshaw in The Guardian. I write for The Observer. And he'd written his in rhyming couplets, you know, like the (laughs) T.S. Eliot poem. Because he was trying to think. And then, you know, somebody else, is, uh, I think Ricky Gervais said, this is the worst thing that happened to dogs. But, but, worst thing that happened to cats. cats. The worst thing that happened to cats since dogs. That's right. And, uh, <laughs> and then I had, you know, uh, somebody else said something about, 
you know, there's lots of people making jokes about putting it down and then in a cat litter and all that sort of stuff. By the time I reviewed it, which, because they didn't show it to me, I had to go to the cinema and see it on a Friday morning, review it in the afternoon. I was trying to find something positive to say about it, but there is so little other than it's not that long. You know, it's <laughs> compact. <laughs> over quite quickly there were some know. good trailers before it yeah you know and, and the seat was comfy and I was, in, <laughs> and I was in the cinema on my own which was nice you know because <laughs> nobody went to see it but the question therefore is that, that everyone there says that, oh well the critics you know slammed cats and then cats sank without trace you know because it's lost a lot of money it's probably lost universal something like 70 million because of how much it cost and how much it then cost to distribute the film and I've always had this thing that critics do not have any effect on box office at all. Okay, they don't. Audiences do not go and see films or not go and see films because of what critics say about them. Outside of a very, very small, like if you ask at a festival, a cineast festival, you know, are you influenced by reviews? You might get one or two yeses. But I'll, I've repeated this fact many times. In 2010, there was a YouGov poll, and YouGov is like this kind of central website in the UK for, you know, if you need to do your tax returns or, you, you know, whatever it is, you, YouGov. And YouGov did a poll that discovered two things that were equally terrifying. The first one was, I was, at that point, the most trusted film critic in the UK, okay? So when they asked people who they trusted, whether they trusted Empire Magazine or whatever, I was number one. And the second thing was that less than 4% of the people that they asked trusted me. <laughs> Which tells you something. And they said, okay, well, who do you trust? And they said, well, we trust people online. We trust Twitter. We trust our friends. So it was that peer-to-peer -peer thing. You don't ask a critic what they think of a film. You ask a friend. Now, one of the interesting things about Jack and I is that Jack comes out of the online world because he's a child and I come out of the world when the printing press had just been invented because he's so, a granddad because I'm a granddad exactly and I started writing in the printed thing and there was a moment when all film critics were told your, your, your careers are finished because of the internet because of the rise of blogging and the rise of vlogging and I remember Ben Wheatley, the director who, uh, you know, uh, made things like A Field in England and... Refire. But yeah, which was actually, which was a great film, which was, which was ignored. He said, the thing about Twitter is it's like you can hear the whole audience talking all the time. Mm. And he said, as a filmmaker, he had to learn to turn it off. I don't think film critics have any effect on what people see. And if they did, why is Transformers a massive hit? Why is Sex and the City 2 a massive hit? Why is it that, you know, Big Mama's House took money? Why are those things true? It's interesting, though, because I have a, a recent example. And I know I'm an anomaly. I'm not you know, because I'm massively interested in film and all the rest of it. But when I saw the trailer for Bad Boys for Life, I was like, who is that for? And the answer is, it certainly isn't me. But I saw that the reviews weren't bad. The reviews for Bad Boys for Life, like the Rotten Tomatoes, it's on like 75-ish percent. It was doing all right. And I was like, hmm, maybe the trailer's misrepresenting it. Maybe the reviews and the, and the critics are seeing something in it. I, I don't know what they're all on, because I saw it. And it's just bad. It's exactly the thing that I thought it was going to be after seeing the trailer. It was like it was written by an algorithm. I couldn't believe how bad it was. Yeah. 
And I was influenced to go and see that because the reviews weren't too bad. Okay, so I saw it in a paid-for cinema because there wasn't the press show. They said, I think they showed it the night before, didn't yeah, they? The which I ignored. Yeah. And the reviews came out and they were, weren't bad. And then I went to go see it later in the week. Okay, well, it was terrible. It was I terrible. agree. But I sat in a cinema that was full and in front of me were four young women, maybe sort of early 20s, and they were on their phones, yep. FaceTiming each other, um, like literally FaceTiming each other. Like one of them there. <laughs> one of them there. I mean, they could have leaned forward and talked. They were actually... I was fantastic. I thought it was amazing. It was More like more entertaining than the film. It was an education for me. <laughs> and they talked and they tweeted and they fell all the way through. I the had film. somebody next to me on their phone and I was I was like, I was just checking in on that as well. I was but not at, bothered. But at the end, at the end of the film, as they were walking out, they went, "Oh, it's great." They really enjoyed it. So it, what I realised was they weren't there to watch the film. They were there to do a whole bunch of other stuff that every now and then involved looking up and seeing Will Smith and Martin Lawrence waving guns at each other. Mm -hmm. But they had a good night out. So it, in a way, what what does it matter what I, as a film critic, think of it? I had to review Paw Patrol: Race Ready Rescue. <laughs> which is a 48-minute animated version of a Nick Jr. cartoon series of which the first 12 minutes is an advert for a forthcoming Paddington TV series, okay? I have no idea what was going on. I reviewed the Power, Powderpuff Girls, Powderpuff, Powder, whatever they call Powerpuff Girls. Powerpuff Girls. Right. I just thought I'd put my head in a, you know, like a candy floss machine <laughs> or something. I was being smashed. I have nothing to say about it because it's not aimed at me uh -huh. and, and and you know so but from your point of view your generation i don't mean that patronizing I, know but you I, don't. I do mean it patronizingly but i know uh, you, but don't. I, you don't listen to film you're most of the people that you are your peers they're not influenced by film critics they're influenced by each other correct yeah and uh, we're a bunch of nerds so we do listen and read a lot of stuff but also a lot of my um information on how people are responding to a film is Rotten Tomatoes, which I feel funny about. And then also there's a lot of people on YouTube who make reviews as well who have become trusted film reviewers. They don't really like to be called critics because they haven't really become that, but they're absolutely reviewing stuff regularly to become like an, an influence on an audience. So they're influencers. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, which is I don't word, like that word. That's a word you hate, right? It's a, a, word I, a word I hate because it's like, it's just moments away from being called a manipulator. And I don't want to be associated with that. But so when you say they don't want to be called critics, that's partly because there is now a stigma attached to being a critic, isn't there? It's like, it's like when you listen to experts, critic. Yeah. It's like, mm. it sounds nitpicky. Yeah, exactly. Whereas in fact, what a it reviewer. Sounds... Yeah, but, but I am a film critic. It's yeah. what I do. And I'm, you know, I, it's what I've always done. And I don't want to be anything else. I want people say, do you ever want to make films? No, you make films. You are a filmmaker. I wouldn't know where to start with making a film. Like you make those comedy. I wouldn't know how you put a comedy sketch together. I've got no sense of how that happens. And a lot of people, I think, have a problem with that being like, it's easier to criticize than it is to create something new. But I... I don't subscribe to that because I think that the thoughtful conversation that comes out of criticism is what I find interesting about it. And I think a lot of people in this room would agree that you don't read something or watch something on someone's opinion on a film to go, well, should I see this or not? I wonder what this person says. You're going to have seen something and then you want to know what someone that you appreciate or respect, someone like you, 
has to say about it. And you do the same thing where you read and, and you retweet and you share a lot of other people's thoughts on, on certain films that you've seen because you are interested in their take on yeah. it. And I think that's the most interesting part of it is the discussion that goes on around it. I had a conversation with my wife once and it, I said, um, she said, I want to go and see Breaking the Waves. And I said, I hate Breaking the Waves. She said, no, I know, but loads of people say it's really good. And I said, I hate it. She went, no, loads of people I respect say it's good. <laughs> <laughs> but there, I mean, I don't... I don't think that film criticism actually is in crisis. I think there is still a... Because people just want to talk about films, and that is actually all, all the film criticism is. It is just talking about films. It's you and me coming out of Star Wars and Going then the sitting pub. in the pub and then yeah. talking about it. We're talking about it in a way which is kind of interesting. Nick just raised an interesting point, which is The Greatest Showman, which is absolutely proof that critics do not affect uh, movie sales because The Greatest Showman opened. It got terrible reviews. And it's now, and I said, and I've never been so wrong in my life, I didn't like The Greatest Showman at all when I first saw it. And I said in my review, amongst all the other things that were wrong with it, it does not have a single memorable tune in it. <laughs> it is currently the biggest selling soundtrack <laughs> album of all time. And, uh, and I just missed it. I completely missed it. And then sometime later, I went back to see it in a cinema in Truro that was entirely full of you know, teenagers, largely, who loved it, who absolutely loved it. I was watching a Louis Theroux documentary the other day, and a woman in this Louis Theroux documentary started quoting the song about This Is Me. It's become like the Shawshank Redemption for people. And again, the Shawshank Redemption flopped when it first came out. It was a failure in the cinema, and then it made its money on video. It's, do you like Greatest Showman? I haven't seen it. I don't think I'm not interested. No, exactly. And that's what I think. I think you wouldn't like it because I think it, it, you'd think it's a bad film. It's not for me. It's not very well made. And I, th either. I think another point on this as well is not only were critics not very pleased about The Greatest Showman, but critics were enamoured with The Last Jedi. And that didn't influence where Star Wars went. Yeah, but you They listened to the other people. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, so, so your point stands that you have no influence no no power <laughs> so, so uh, in a rather needy and pathetic way what's the point of what i'm doing tell tell me why i think you've got interesting things to say Mark. thank you Jack. Look, so do all these people and i'm just along for the ride <laughs> <laughs> hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One of the things that we wanted to do as something that was actually a kind of a substantial thing was we fell into conversation about 
music in movies because the one thing that we were all agreed about about the Oscars mm. was that the the Oscar for best score is going to be won quite correctly by Hilda Goodnadotta for Joker. I think it's entirely possible that Joker won't sweep the board. I think it's got the most nominations, which I find baffling. But um, I don't think it's got a chance of winning. I think it's going to win two awards, and they're two big ones, which are actor and music. Okay. So the the Hilda Goodnadotta score is brilliant. There's a weird thing about in the in the history of the Oscars, there have only been seven women nominated for best original score. Of which there have only been three. When actually Rachel Portman more than once, there have only been three wins, but mm. only two. No, th- go on. So three, three winners. Two, two, yeah, two winners, and then one joint winner. Right. For, yeah, yeah, yeah. For Yentl, yeah. And so uh, Hilda Goodenough is the seventh, and I think she will win. I think which which will be great. So we started talking about how important music is in movies, and I'd done a book some time ago called Celluloid Jukebox about the importance of pop music in movies. And we started saying, okay, well, what are the, the, the classic scenes of music in movies that you really love? And not exactly co- like best score. No. We were just talking about how, what, what scenes in movies would not be the same with different music in them. What, what scenes are made by the music that's, it, it, that's used in them. And we, were, we sort of decided to come up with a list of our three favourites. You've cheated. Yes. I came up with four. But then that's because I'm older than you and that's fine. So, <laughs> And we've, you got, win. we've got some clips which we're going to show you. These, as, as Jack said, they're not just score. Some of them are score. Some of them are, are, are songs. But these are just. We're just going to show these to you. Each clip is a little. It's about a, a minute long, and we're just going to just say a few words about why we think these are interesting. Jack, what's your first two clips? Well, I'll do them. To, yeah, so I'll do them slightly separately. So the first one is this. This is a title sequence from Barry Lyndon, and it's not original music. But Leonard Rosenman won the Oscar for adapting original music. So it's a piece by Handel, which was written for the harpsichord, which is orchestrated. When people think of Barry Lyndon, a lot of the time they think of chieftains and, you know, women of Ireland, all that stuff. This is only like... I just think this scene is brilliant. And all it is, is the titles and the opening music. I think that that is as iconic as the opening of 2001 with the use of Alstro Sprach's Zarathustra. And you all know that famously there was a score for 2001 and Stanley Kubrick threw it out at the last moment. So there was a score written by uh, Alex North and um, he'd scored the whole film pretty much. There is a story that he didn't know that his score wasn't used until the premiere, although I don't think that story can be true, but there, that, that was the story. And of course, so he uses all the, you know, the, the, the waltzes and the Alstros Brax Zarathustra. And playing that made me think of this, which is one of the only seven women nominated for best soundtrack, which is Mika Levy's soundtrack for um, Under the Skin. And the reason it connects with that is because it specifically invokes the opening of 2001. The story of uh, Under the Skin is that an alien comes to Earth and assumes human forms. It's like the woman who fell to Earth. Scott Johansson again, playing everything. Playing everything and being absolutely brilliant. Being absolutely brilliant. But what's great about the opening is that none of this is explained verbally. It's explained through this strange mix of images and this very odd... Calling it music is 
it's like music concrete. It's like the stuff that she was doing with Monos. Again, this is only about a minute long, but in this sequence, it kind of sets up everything you need to know about she's an alien who's come to Earth and is adopting human form. And what's interesting is it's actually quite hard to tell what's music and what's just sound effect. Okay. Massively unsettling. So Mika Levy was nominated for Jackie, not for that, which she should have been nominated for that, and she should have won for that. You see, for, for, for me, that is every bit as iconic as 2001, and it tells you everything you need to know because that sound that she's making, it's like the sound of the blood running in the veins. So it's like you can imagine a creature being born. It's like the sound of the planets, of the kind of, of the universe. The thing is visually invoking 2001, and it's telling you everything you need to know before the drama starts. So I would say those are two sequences in which by the time the film starts you're already there and you're there because of the music. And you, and you think if that was at all changed... It wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't work. Yeah, it wouldn't, wouldn't work. Neither Barry Linda nor Under the Skin would work if they didn't have that, that, those pieces at the beginning. Your first choice. I'm going to the end of a film. Okay. Um, so for me, this is one of the most iconic pieces of cinema ever. It is the first film I ever saw in the cinema. It is The Lion King. Uh, it is the moment at the end when Simba climbs... Uh, Pride Rock to assume his place as king uh, for the final roar. Let's all enjoy. I find that massively emotional and probably because I've lived with it my entire life. And I think the best way of talking about why that works so well is to compare it to the terrible <laughs> live action remake. Where Which is not live action. Not at all, but, yeah. obviously. But that moment to me is like, that's a character rising and overcoming their fears and finally taking their place in the circle of life and being okay with that and understanding what their place in the world is. And in the live action, quote unquote, remake, it's just Lion Walks Up Rock. And it's, it's, <laughs> it's got no emotion in it. Like that, every single shot is perfectly in sync with the music. It is like, it is married to it. It almost reminds me of the end of E.T., and the story of the end of E.T. is that Spielberg actually extended the edits because John Williams couldn't fit his score on top of the image. So Spielberg said, get rid of it and just compose what you want to compose and I'll change the edit. That feels the same to me. It feels like they, they exist together. And I think it's a beautiful piece of storytelling. I think it's perfect. Um, and that is the only score that Hans Zimmer has ever won an Oscar for. So... Yeah. So he didn't win for Dunkirk? He didn't, didn't win for Dunkirk or for Gladiator or Inception. But he was nominated for all these things and I think he's been nominated 11 times. Won that one time. So my next choice is, isn't the piece of score, it's the use of a pop song. And this is a clip from Moonlight, which I love to pieces. And the reason I've chosen this is because this scene very specifically, which is in a diner in which the two lovers who've been separated by life and fate meet for the first time in years, both very, very different people. 
and one of them goes over to the jukebox and puts a very particular song on the jukebox, and it, it's, I think it's a specific homage to American Graffiti, mm -hmm. in which the whole of the story is basically told through the jukebox soundtrack. And also it's lovely because there's no words in the scene except the song. And again, I love it when the choice of a song means you don't have to have dialogue. I think the show-don't-tell thing about filmmaking is the stuff that excites me the most. It's only a short scene, but um, so here we go. So this is they, they've met together for the first time after years apart, and they're in love, but they've never been able to kind of properly express that. So. Hello, stranger. It seems so good to see you back again. Isn't that just genius? It is. I mean, isn't that just the most perfect placing of a pop song in a film? It's cut like a conversation. I think also that throughout all of Moonlight, Barry Jenkins is the director, correct? Yeah, yeah. Barry Jenkins very specifically moves camera between characters whenever they feel like they are actually connected to each other. So the camera doesn't cut. It literally glides between them very, very gently. It does it throughout the film. Um, and doing it there twice, from him to the jukebox, and then from him sitting back down, makes you feel like there is, I don't know, like there's, there's a relationship between them constantly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that would have absolutely been a pick of mine if you didn't pick it first. Okay, so you've gone for one with a pop song in it as well. I have gone for a pop song as well. This Bit is, of a change. This is a very, very different one. So we're going to shift tone to Kick-Ass. <laughs> I was actually going to choose the church fight in uh, Kingsman, uh, where they use, um, what do they use? They use... Uh, Freebird. Freebird, thank you very much. Um, it's a good audience. Yeah, it is, yeah. Like very educated audience um, for my mental blocks. Uh, yeah, I was going to use that, but then I thought, what's the original version of that? Because I'm a massive Matthew Vaughan fan, um, or at least I was until he made Kingsman 2. Uh, <laughs> uh, and this is an absolute favourite of mine. There's so much stuff I love about this film, but this piece of music is so perfectly placed for the introduction of Hit Girl. Okay, you cunts. Let's see what you can do now. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. I mean, the reasons why I love that, I think, are pretty obvious. Um, she's committing mass genocide. She's doing such a horrible, horrible thing, but it, you see it the way she sees it as this big, silly, fun game. And I think it, it's perfect, and it's such a great way of making you like her. <laughs> and that's the Dickies version of the Dickies uh, version of, of, Banana, of Banana Split. Splits theme. Yeah, you, have, yeah. you have Banana Splits here, yeah? Yeah, so... But, it, but what's great about it is it is still really funny. It is. Because it's such a preposterous piece of music to have put underneath. It's like, it's like one of those things like Quentin Tarantino using Stuck in the Middle with You under the ear slicing yes. thing. But, but the effect is completely different because rather than making it nastier, it just makes it funny. Yes. And the more violent and unpleasant she is, the funnier it becomes. Cutting off the leg gets me every single time. No, it's and it's when she like stabs him and she's on the same level as Kick-Ass and he's just looking at her and she just smiles like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so my last choice, and this is, so this is a piece, um, this is a piece of music from Magnolia, which everybody knows as the central scene in Magnolia. So I imagine most of you have seen Magnolia, okay, the Paul Thomas Anderson film. 
And there is a section about in about four g- days long, isn't it? It is four days long, yeah. <laughs> but when he finished making it, he was at a press conference, and they said, "What are you going to do next?" He said, "I'm going to make a 90-minute Adam Sandler comedy." Everybody <laughs> laughed, and then he did. And of course, then it was <laughs> but Magnolia is a series of, in- of stories that aren't really intertwined, except for the fact that they are they're joined by a street—the street that you see the, the the name of, you know, as the camera pans down at the beginning. So some of these stories intersect, and some of them don't. And there is a moment about almost midway but kind of slightly further on in the film in which they play this song by Amy Mann called Wise Up and every main character from the song sings one of the lines from the song Mm -hmm. so you see all these people and it's done as if they could all be listening on a radio to it or maybe it's just playing in their heads or maybe it's just playing in and it's it's really the center of the film I'll play you a little bit of the clip. I won't play you the whole song, but I'll play you a little bit and I'll tell you a really interesting story about how it ended up there, okay? So this is like in the middle of all these individual characters' lives have started to fall apart. Suddenly, the film sort of turns into a musical. So that's the centerpiece of Magnolia, okay? And literally, the film appears to to be built around that thing. So here's the interesting thing. Firstly, that song was not written for that film. That song was written for Jerry Maguire. And then the director of Jerry Maguire, it was Cameron Crowe, decided that they didn't like the song as much as they'd like the demo, so they cut it out of Jerry Maguire. But he then decided to put it on the soundtrack album of Jerry Maguire, which is where Paul Thomas Anderson heard it and said, that's a really great song. Why isn't it in Jerry Maguire? And Amy Mann said, Paul Thomas, because uh, J- uh, Cameron Crowe didn't like it, he cut it out. And Paul Thomas Anderson said, that's crazy. I'm going to use that in my next film. <laughs> so he then built that entire sequence around a song that was written for a different film. And then... I had a, interviewed him on stage and I said, I love that sequence because the whole thing is that for me, so many films are essentially musicals. I think musicals are in many ways the great, the great 20th century art form. And, uh, and that scene is brilliant because it's the moment when the film admits what it is. It admits that it's a musical. And he said, yeah, and the interesting thing is if I made the, that film again now, that's the scene I cut out. Oh, wow. And I said, why? And he said, because I'm sick of people like you telling me how important that scene is. <laughs> <laughs> he, said, he said, honestly, that now that he goes back to it, he thinks that that's the one scene, because we all just went, it's genius. And it's, so he thinks that it's kind of, t- in, in the time that we had that interview, he thought it was too obvious. And he said, if he went back now, he would take out Wise Up. Wow. Incidentally, I mentioned it only in passing, I played bass with Amy Mann. I mentioned it only in passing. Thank you. Let's hear it from Mark Kermode. Thank you. <laughs> I heard a, uh, an interview with Paul Thomas Anderson on a podcast somewhere at some point recently and he said that when he made Magnolia and everyone was talking about how long it is he was like no but it has to be that long it needs that running time yeah. and then he said he's gone back a few years later and been like eh it could have been shorter <laughs> <laughs> it just shows you how different things are when you're further away before you choose your last year you, yes. you put a thing on Twitter which was tell me what your yeah I, I, I basically wanted to ask Twitter because I'm sure you're all building your lists in your head right now I'm sure you're thinking like this this, this and this and this you know, we can only choose three 
apparently, but four for you. Yeah. So I asked Twitter, and these are some of the things that they said. Uh, the final scene in Call Me By Your Name, when Elio's staring into the fire, which is the credits as well, which yeah. is so good. And I also think the, uh, the sequence when they go on their little trip in Call Me By Your Name, which is set to Mystery of Love, I yeah. believe, which is so beautiful. A real hero making a driving scene uh, with driver I Irene and Benicio feels so much more emotional in Drive. Uh, yep, totally agree. Drive is so, so good, and it gets better with age. It's aging like fine wine. This one is such a favourite, obviously. <laughs> Don't Stop Me Now in Shaun of the Dead has got to make it in there. Yeah, that scene was so good, and it's still funny now. Um, obviously, John Williamson's masterpiece when Luke is staring at the twin sons in A New Hope. Yeah, that is... I mean, there's a Family Guy parody where they're making fun of everything in Star Wars, <laughs> and then at that moment, they just go, ladies and gentlemen... John Williams. <laughs> they just let the moment happen. <laughs> uh, the swimming lesson in Moonlight. Um, yeah, which we've... I mean, there's so many moments in Moonlight we could have picked because, I mean, Nicholas Brattel is, is... brilliant. Uh, I, think, I think he might be up there in, in terms of your question about favourite composer. He might yeah. be up there with my favourite. And also that thing about the theremin in First Man, which is lovely because first... I mean, I love, I love a theremin. I play the theremin very, very badly. But the theremin in First Man is played rather beautifully and it's this piece that he takes then with him into space because it is the kind of the lunar... Is it a lunar waltz or whatever, lunar melody. And it is, it is absolutely beautiful. You can never beat a theremin in a film score, <laughs> which is why The Day the Earth is still is so great because... The the opening theme to the day the earth is still by Bernard Herrmann has two theremins. Ah. Yeah, what's better than one theremin? <laughs> two this is an interesting one as well because I think you've mentioned that the, the obvious one would be the one from um, Reservoir Dogs, yeah. but Tarantino's use of Cat People by David Bowie and Inglorious Bastards as the main characters are preparing to effectively go to war. I'm pretty sure it's the only modern song in that film. Yes, I think it is. And it, was, it made a lot of people feel weird because they were like, hang on, this is set in... World War Two. Why is why is David Bowie on the soundtrack? But yeah. you can do what you want, yeah. and he's Tarantino. He's going to do it once. Is that? Do we have any more? Uh, yeah, that's obviously a, a modern one. What's up, Danger in Into the Spider Verse, which was so good and weaved perfectly into Daniel Pemberton's score. Um, the fact the fact that he does an, an orchestral sort of like cinematic version of it. Yep. It's just it that moment hits so well in that movie. So what's your so what's your final choice? My final choice is from Room. Um, so oh God, yeah. uh, the the escape scene in Room spoilers for Room they get out of the room um, but yeah, but that, that's in the trailer I mean that's the uh, thing. which is why I'm so glad I didn't see the trailer you, yeah no I know it. it's like if the trailer starts he's in a room oh no he's out yeah mental so I'm glad I didn't see that because it's such an effective scene it's, it's not a piece of score it was supposed to be um, the composer, what's his name? Stephen uh, Rennix. Stephen Rennix. Stephen Rennix, who'd worked, at, you know, with the com with the, the director several times. That's right. And what happened? <laughs> they cut this sequence to a temp track uh, by a band called This Will Destroy You, um, and he fell in love with it. I actually met the composer and asked him about it, and he was like, "Yeah, I was supposed to compose something, but he fell in love with that song. Obviously, I find it so emotional. I might even struggle to watch it now, um, but let's watch it." Track. Wiggle out, jump, run, somebody. I'm going to do my best to say why I think that is so perfect. Because I think that that scene could have made the main thing is he going to get out and is he going to be okay but the music is telling you already that he is because they're not just going to stop that as it's building up 
but there's an inherent tension to it anyway. And actually, I think what's built around this is the whole crescendo is boy sees the sky for the first time. And wow, what a performance from him. Because yeah. you see that on his face and it just lets you bathe in that moment. And it's not, and for a moment, you forget that he's supposed to be escaping. So the whole thing is more about him experiencing the world for the first time more than getting away from a dangerous situation, which is why I think the music is perfectly chosen and couldn't, couldn't have been changed. So the only thing I'd say in response to that is that I think Jacob Tremblay's performance is brilliant. I think that that piece of music is perfectly chosen and I, my heart goes out to Stephen Rennix, who was the composer, who was, you know, what often happens is a, a director will put a bit of temp music and say, write me something like that. And then it's very hard because you're trying to write something that isn't the thing that they've got used to. Which is why everything sounds like Hans Zimmer. Yeah, exactly. But in this particular case, I think, okay, just staying with that is the right choice. The other example, which was more recent but destroyed a film for me, was Manchester by the Sea, mm. in which the director had used Albinoni's Adagio for the central sequence in which we finally discover what it is that is in this character's backstory, which is this terrible tragedy. And he had used Albinoni's Adagio as a temp track, and he had asked his composer to write something like it, and she had had a go, but he fell in love with the Albinoni. And then when you see the film, the Albinoni's Adagio is there, and all I can think is Rollerball, Gallipoli, Butterflies, the TV series, Simon Mayo's Confessions. <laughs> that bit, there are so many films. I mean, there actually ought to be a law now which says you cannot use Albinoni's Adagio in a movie because everyone has used it. <laughs> it's, I, keep, I kept expecting them to stop and sell me insurance, and it drove me nuts and have, because it was, such, it was such a cod choice. Yeah, I have um, a similar thing where I think a piece of music takes me out of a scene in an otherwise I think almost perfect film in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind when Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet meet each other for the first time timelines um, there's that this plinky plonky music underneath them when they're in the train scene and it does my head in every single time and I get you could probably justify it the director's probably got a reason as to why he used that music it probably was supposed to make you feel a bit weird but I wish it was just playing out a, a bit more naturally because they're performing like they're doing it naturally but for some reason it's scored by this comedy sketch music and it really really does my head in it grinds my gears <laughs> this, the, the, the orgy sequence in Eyes Wide Shut which I've always referred to as Eyes Wide Shit because it is a terrible film <laughs> but there's that long piece of music that goes bong bing <laughs> bong bing <laughs> And it just goes on for like six minutes while Tom Cruise wanders around and fails to get a blowjob despite saying the word Fidelio to a man dressed as a chicken. You think, what is this film about? <laughs> it just goes on and on and on. It's a terrible choice. Should we take some audience? Greatest piece of use of music, whether original piece of music or something in a film, a scene from a film that you really love with a brilliant, with a brilliant piece of music. Not just best scores. Over there. Can we just run a microphone down to... To the front here. To the front here. Yes, I'm, I'm sorry. But just uh, to there. Oh, well, no, we've got somebody else first. Okay, we'll come to you in just a second. Let's go there first. Arrival, uh, Johan Johansson. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. But of course, the interesting thing about Arrival and Johan Johansson is that Arrival begins with that piece by Max Richter on daylight. 
Ah. So although most of the score is Johansson, that piece at the very beginning is, is Max Richter's On Daylight. And it's, it's one of those kind of classic cases in which I love all of that score, but the bit I love the most is the bit that isn't that score. It's interesting, isn't it, that Johan Johansson, obviously, God rest him, Jesus, he, he died, unfortunately, like very suddenly. Yeah. But he was supposed to do Blade Runner. And did, it didn't work, apparently. And so they got in Hans Zimmer. <laughs> and I love Zimmer's score for Blade Runner 2049. I think it's, that movie is a modern masterpiece. I think it's so good. But it would have been very interesting to hear what Johan Johansson would have done with it. Yeah. And also another interesting thing about Johan Johansson is he was supposed to do the score for Mother. And there was a full score written for Darren Aronofsky's Mother. But then they watched it and they went, this is just telling us how to feel. And they both agreed, let's get rid of it. And they made a, a movie without a score. And the other thing that's interesting about Johan Johansson is that Hilda Gunnardotter and him work together. Oh, and, right. and now she has kind of carried on the mantle. And she, as, she, as I think we're agreed, is about to win the Oscar mm -hmm. for Joker. Um, over here. This gentleman at the front. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I really like the um, uh, music in The Truman Show. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's Philip Glass. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah the, the moment that comes to mind straight away is when he starts to figure it out. Yeah. When he starts to like put his hand in front of traffic and that, that piece of music there is... Yes, I agree. There was one just there. I'll come back. Uh, international film, I think uh, all these films were... Um, yeah. I, I mean, what's the name of the category now? International? Yeah, they, they're yeah. now calling yeah. it international. Yeah. Yeah. They change the name, um, don't worry about it, they change the name every uh, year. <laughs> yeah, California Dreaming in Chunking Express. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, well, I mean, Chunk. I mean, he is brilliant. Wong Kar Wai is absolutely brilliant with his use of music. I think the first time this is a terrible confession. I think the first time I ever heard Radiohead was in a, a Wong Kar Wai film. I think I actually hadn't heard their music before that. And actually, most of what I know about pop music now consists of me coming home and saying to my child. What's what, that song? What's in? in? Yeah, what's, no, not what's in. You know, what's in. I was saying to you, oh, I really like that piece. What is it? You go, oh, yeah, that's a very old band that everyone's bored of already. <laughs> we were, yeah. yeah, I was thinking of the opening scene of Death in Venice with Marlowe's music. I can never hear that piece of Marlowe without seeing that opening scene of the film. And, and that thing about marrying, once you've seen a scene married perfectly to yes. a piece of music, yeah. you cannot undo that marriage and that i think is why the albinoni thing bothers me it's so exactly much. yeah that's it because it's already wedded to something else yeah. it's like seeing it with the wrong partner you go that's not how it works <laughs> ken russell ken russell always said um that when he heard classical music he saw pictures and all his films were were the picture versions of the records that he loved and and that same thing like he would you know he would he would see the music and then he would make the film of the thing that he saw when he heard the music. That is apparently why Christopher Nolan doesn't cut things to temp tracks, because he knows that you can get uh, married to it. And, and, and that's exactly what happened to Room. It's exactly what happened to Manchester by the Sea. And that's why everything ends up sounding a bit like Hans Zimmer, when it's, even when it's not Hans Zimmer, is because everything is cut to Inception soundtrack and yeah, all yeah. the rest of it. And then everyone wants it to sound a bit like that. Um, so yeah, I think it's, a, it's and I think you interviewed Hans Zimmer and I was there. I did. And Zack Snyder had put a uh, a track from Gladiator on a bit from uh, Man of Steel and showed it to Christopher Nolan and Christopher Nolan went before you show Hans, take that out. <laughs> and I think that's what he said. Uh, Hans Zimmer <laughs> admitted that, that had, that's what had happened. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so. 
Uh, final scene of uh, Portrait de la Jeune Fille en Feu with uh, Vivaldi's The Four Seasons, with the uh, close-up of uh, Adèle Hanel, who was remembering yeah, yeah. her lost love. I thought that was shamefully overlooked with the Oscars, incidentally, that, that film. All the best films are shamefully overlooked at the Oscars. That's kind of how... It's almost like a badge of honour. I used to do this thing, the Kermode Awards, in which I would, I would give... The only, the only category was you couldn't win an award for anything for which you had been Oscar-nominated. And my whole thing was that you can get a better list of winners from things that have not even been nominated because, as you know... They don't see the best stuff. I mean, the way the Oscars work, just in case anyone's wondering, the way the Oscars work is this. The Golden Globes are run by a bunch of corrupt bozos who are bribable and are completely unanswerable to anybody. They choose a short list of films that the Academy voters then watch and choose their winners from. So the whole process is completely screwed from the beginning because it <coughs> begins with a bunch of absolutely bribable, cheap bastards. That's, that's you know... I think that's fair, isn't it? Sure, oh, I'm yeah. not saying anything. Uh, um, I think about uh, Trent uh, Reznor and Atticus Ross in The Social Network. Yes. Uh, incredible. Yeah, their, their score, is, uh, the thing that comes to mind, I mean, there's so many bits of that. The Social Network is absolutely one of my favourite films, if not my favourite film. Um, but there's, uh, I mean, Handcover's Bruise is obviously an amazing piece of music. But the first thing that comes to my mind is their version of In the Hall of the Mountain King. Right. Uh, during the, uh, the, the rowing scene. What's right. the first thing that comes to your head when you think of Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross's score for that movie? Yes. And by the way, the rowing team is actually uh, the Dutch uh, national rowing team. Right? Ah. <laughs> is it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wow, because it's, it's supposed to be in Cambridge. Yeah, but it isn't shot in Cambridge. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the Dutch national rowing team doing that rowing. At least the the ones that uh, that end up winning. <laughs> yeah, nice. Applause. <laughs> <Rats laughs> <laughs> well done. <laughs> um, I'm aware that we're into the last. Yes, we'll go. We'll go uh, we're into the last ten minutes. So go ahead. And but, but anything, anything anyone wants to ask, whether it's particularly on this or anything at all, gloves are off within certain. Yeah. Within reason. Yeah. Karen. For me, it's definitely Ry Cooter on uh, Paris, Texas. Oh. When I hear one note of that, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm there as well in that story. Yeah. And of course, the, okay, the comparison for me is that when you hear the Ry Cooter score for Paris, Texas, it sounds like it's coming out of the landscape, right? And the other score, which I think does the same thing, is the Mark Knopfler score for Local Hero. And it's interesting that they were both people who were writing primarily for guitar and writing the score, you know, and it's, it's a landscape score. You hear that Paris, Texas score, you know exactly, you know, you know where you are geographically. And you hear Local Hero, which I love. I know people think it's sentimental, but I absolutely love it. But that score seems to come out of the rocks and the water and the village and, you know, it's beautiful. Neil Young for Dead Man, yeah, no, that is great. The Neil Young Dead Man score is absolutely brilliant. That, and actually, that's a really great silent film that just happens to have words. Yes, uh, I'd like just to mention how um, wonderful things can happen with this combining. I'm picking out songs that are almost forgotten, which happened with Bob Dylan's song, The Man in Me, in Big Lebowski, you know, <laughs> which was a forgotten, completely buried song. And then when it was picked up and... and played in that movie became like an anthem for all the big Lebowski fans you know and it's such a quirky odd song but all the there stoners it fits, just say it it fits perfectly yeah <laughs> where do you stand on the big Lebowski I think it's good 
I think it. I, I, all right. Okay. 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 No. No. I'm. I'm with you. I'm. I don't. He's wearing like, a bloody. He's wearing a friggin' like shirt the in the front row. I'm, so, I'm really sorry. <laughs> I'm really sorry. But you know, I think. I, I think it starts off really, really, really good and then it gets really lost really quickly and I sort of lose my way with the Big Lebowski but I know that like some people swear by it and I, I'm, not, I'm not here to challenge you on that. I, I'm because you're bigger than us. <laughs> <laughs> but, it yeah, is, but you don't like the Big Lebowski. Uh, I, uh, here's the thing. I know so many people who love the Big Lebowski and the people who love it, love it, right? Like, how many times have you watched it? Fine, okay. So that's a lot of times, right? And, and so I understand that I'm on a completely sticky wicket, but I always like the discipline of the Coens, right? I like the, you know, the, I, I, I love uh, Miller's Crossing. I love Barton Fink. It, I agree with what Jack says, that it, the, the way that Big Lebowski plays out is it's, it's a film that is as stoned as its subject matter. And it's kind of, you know, there's a, hey, you know, blah, and then, you know, halfway through, he's wondering, and you got, I'm sorry, I've lost, where, who, yeah. what? I, I, I know, no, I know, I yeah. I understand, just, but the I, thing is, I'm naturally, for me, that just makes me panic. I just think, is, oh, organize yourself. I just, prefer, just, in, in the same vein, but I prefer Burn After Reading. Because I think Burn After Reading is really funny, but then halfway through the film, when you're introduced to J.K. Simmons, he goes, "What's going on?" And he sort of gets an update, which you're looking for, and he goes, "All right, let's just see where it goes." And then, and then it just keeps going, and nobody knows. And it's it's all about chaos. And then at the end, J.K. Simmons goes, "Ah, oh, fuck it, what's all about?" Yeah, 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 yeah. Nobody's got. Let's just idea. make sure we don't do it again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, we 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 come there, and then we'll come there next. Hi. Um I was just thinking about what you said at the beginning about why people listen to film critics or what they take away from it. And yeah. For me, it was just, I hear f about movies from you that I would never have known about if things like A Field in England that you call uh, at the beginning, that is just such a brilliant film and it's completely unknown. I'd love it. And that's mainly why I listen to the show, really. I think that if there is any purpose in film criticism, that's it. I think it doesn't matter what a critic says about a film. I think what matters is that they say it about a film. It's not whether they say it's great or it's bad, it's that they talk about it. And if there is any purpose to this, it is bring it, bringing up films that you think people might not have seen because if one person goes to see a field of England because they heard you talking about it, then that's it. And I honestly think that that is the point of it. And that's like, you know, when you and I are sitting around having discussions, you go, have you seen this film? No. Oh, well, you should do because it's like, you know, that's it. That, I really think that is the main point. And I'm so thrilled that you said a field of, field of England because that's field of England turns, turns up in one of the programs that Nick and I have just made. And it's only sort of a little clip from it, but it's, that film is completely brilliant and nuts. I mean, the, we've got the tent walk in it, you know, with... And, uh, that'll work really well on radio. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there was another hand down here. Yes, that gentleman here. Um, I really have two choices. Uh, um, in Amadeus, when uh, Saliagi and Mozart are composing uh, Requiem together, it's so brilliantly edited and really gets you into mind of a composer. But uh, I have a more personal uh, choice for Coco, which I don't think is a perfect film. Mm. But my grandmother, who had dementia, passed away a year before that. And when I saw um, that scene with Remember Me, I just wept and wept and oh, wept yeah. and wept. And yeah, it's, it's a testament that how uh, certain things can really connect you, uh, wake you, yeah. Did you want to say because you were agreeing with that? No, I, I completely agree. I, I, I mean, I, I apologise that, that, that you went through that. I went through the exact same thing just before I saw um, 
uh, Coco as well, and it did the exact same, had the exact same effect. And I think even if you haven't had that exact experience where you've lost a grandparent through dementia, if you've lost anybody, and you've, you know, that that's why Pixar are so great. They're very good at finding those nerves and going, cry! (laughs) 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 I mean, one of my favourite scenes in Amadeus, I know it's the the hackney thing, is when um, Salieri has played the piece and then he sits down and he says, oh, it's all in my mind. You know, he says, you need the project? He says, no, I don't need the sheet music. And he starts playing it. He goes, how does it go? And then he goes, that bit doesn't quite work, does it? How about... And he says, <laughs> <laughs> you know. uh, yeah, anyone else? Yes, over here. Um, I don't have a favourite music thing because I've got too many to mention. <laughs> um, just a general question, though. If there was any movie that you've seen this past year that wasn't uh, nominated for an Oscar, that, what would be your pick? And what would you recommend then? You want to go first? Yeah, I know what yours is. Oh, yeah. uh, mine would be Honey Boy. Um, uh, Alma Haral, I think that's how you pronounce her name, directed it. And I think she is, I think, in my opinion, has done the best directing work out of anybody this year. It's so hands-off and hands-on. It's just this very intimate thing that she's been able to create. I think that Shia LaBeouf has written a wonderful screenplay from a very personal place and has also done a very personal performance. He plays his own dad in the film for people who haven't seen it. Please, please discover it. And the little boy who's in it, he's in Ford versus Ferrari as well, but it's maybe one of the best child performances I've seen since maybe Room. Um, it is so complicated and it's got so many weird little moments in it where you may struggle to even understand what the perspective is they're trying to give you on what's going on but it's certainly treated with respect all of it um from the alcoholism to the strange relationship that the little boy has with his next door neighbor um all of it is so brilliant and i recommend it so highly and i was so surprised that it was completely ignored by the academy awards uh, but also at the same time not surprised because like we've said they ignore the best stuff I mean, I'd say just very quickly, my favourite film of the last year is Bait, but it wasn't eligible for Oscars because it hasn't opened in America yet. But this is this film by Mark Jenkin. It is an absolute, it's a genuine British masterpiece. And I think it's the most important British film of the last 10 years. It's really remarkable. But it wasn't eligible for Oscars. It hasn't opened in America, but do see it. Of the ones that were eligible, I would say Joanna Hogg's Souvenir. Although, annoyingly... The film, film company in America, A24, didn't even submit it for the Oscars. So it wasn't even on the eligible long list because they just thought, well, it's no, you know, there's no... And I think it's, that's got brilliant performances in it. I think that's... A, and she's an incredible filmmaker. And I think it would have been lovely to have seen that. But then, as Jack quite rightly said, you know, Oscar schmoska, they get, they, <laughs> they, get, they get it all wrong. It's like, all you need to know about the Oscars is this. Citizen Kane didn't win the Oscar for Best Picture but driving Miss Daisy did. So, you know, um, it, we're slightly... So we should take one more, and then we better finish. So last question, if you want, hand up in the air, or I will draw us to a close now. Is there... there? Right in the middle. Yeah, there we go. There, in the middle. Then. Make it a good one. Yeah. <laughs> I hope so. Um, uh, I just wanted to ask, um, what's your favourite Dutch movie? Oh! Or have you... <laughs> Can I go for Good night! <laughs> okay. So I know the thing is that technically it's a co-production and I always pronounce the Dutch title wrong, but Sporloos or The Vanishing <laughs> is... How do you say that word? Sporloos, yeah. okay, fine. I'm it's the right idiot, answer, right? actually. I, that film... I, 
it upset me so much when I first saw it. I thought it was genius. And what I love about it is the fact that, that there is the moment when they're in the tunnel when she kind of, she dreams the thing that's going to happen. And the whole thing, because it's based on the Tim Crabbin of the golden egg, and she has the dream of... And then at the end of the film, after this horrible stuff has happened, the dream has come true. And if you look at the very end, after, you know how it finishes, right? Her tree has come into blossom. It's, the, it's like the sickest possible joke. And I interviewed Slauser, Slizer, Slauser, Slauser, how? Schlauscher, I'm cl it's close, right? <laughs> George, as I called him. And, uh, and I said to him, so you're saying that, sh that she kind of wills all this into existence? And he went, oh. <laughs> and I, oh, yeah, I, I, that film, genius. Jack? Good Lord. Um, I'm so embarrassed. I probably, I probably have seen... I mean, does In Bruges count? It probably doesn't count, does it? <laughs> Oh, I've lost the audience Jack. right at the end. Jack, Jack. Fart bomb. Yeah, yeah well, done. well done. It's marvellous. I'm so sorry yeah. to end it this way, but I don't think I've seen... I'm not educated enough on Dutch cinema. I, that's, that's something I need to brush up on for next year. Uh, well, I'll tell you what. Here's what you should do. See The Vanishing. Mm -hmm. right? You've all seen The Vanishing, right? You all saw the American remake when he gets out in the end, which is just... Oh, good Lord. Which is directed by Schlauser. He went back and killed his own movie. It's like, it's horrible. Um, but watch... I can't speak other languages. My mouth is just wrong for it. And then we'll come back next year and you, will, you can do a full breakdown analysis of it. Okay. It will creep the hell out of you. All right. It is such a... It's, such, it's a genius film, but it's terrifying. Well, there we are. That was me and Jack Howard live on stage at the Rotterdam International Film Festival. Thanks to everybody who came along to the live show. And thanks for downloading and listening to this Kermit on Film podcast. If you like the sound of Kermit on Film live, then you can come to one of our BFI monthly shows. They happen every month, have been doing so for the last four years. They sell out very quickly, but go to the BFI website and see if you can grab some tickets. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, remember to subscribe. And why not visit our Patreon page, which has got some extra video content. And also you can hear the podcast without any adverts at all. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Keep watching the skies. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.